Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth and Mo and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. <laughs> she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of your guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. Thank you, Meg. Well, welcome once again, everybody. 
So good to have you here. I'm Johnny, one of the pastors, if you are new. Uh, We are, as you can probably tell, walking through the book of Ruth as a community this July. And uh, today we have entered into chapter two as the story begins to progress. But just for a little bit of context as to where we've been and what's been happening, last week and the week before that, we were in chapter one, which sort of sets the stage for the book of Ruth. And in that chapter, we learn that this story takes place in the time of the judges, which is a very difficult and tumultuous time to be alive, but especially if you're a woman. This is before Israel has a king. It's before the stories of David, before the monarchy, before the temple is built. It is a time when Israel is barely holding on to its borders, its identity, and its political stability. And we also learned that it's a season of a famine, that something has gone so wrong that there's not just economic issues, there's also environmental issues. And so a character named Naomi and her family flee Israel during famine to a land called Moab. And in this foreign land, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons and is left with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and one other daughter-in-law. That's how we started the series. It was a really fun way to begin summer. And then last week, Heather walked us through Naomi and Ruth's journey home. They find out that the famine has begun to end in Israel, and so they begin to make their way back home, hoping to find some stability and some community support amongst Naomi's family. And you get to see these moments of beautiful faithfulness as Ruth and Naomi work out their relationship together And we also wrestle with Naomi's very powerful and holy words of lament, naming the reality of her situation, naming her loss, and expressing the experience that she has had. And today, as we continue on in our story in chapter 2, the camera sort of switches from Naomi She's been the primary protagonist, so to say, of this story. And it begins to move to Boaz and to Ruth. We talked about this week one, that oftentimes Ruth gets read like a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And there is a bit of a love story that is happening under the surface of this story. But if that's the framework you bring to this narrative, you are going to miss what's actually happening under the surface. Because as Naomi and Ruth make it into Bethlehem. Their life is not immediately easy. They still don't really have any economic security or financial stability. And we've talked about over the last couple of weeks that Naomi and Ruth without husbands and sons find themselves in a very precarious position because ancient Israel is a culture in which all security, all access, all inheritance moves patrilineally through a man, through a father, through a son. And so without either of those things, they are in this intensely vulnerable position. So they make it to Bethlehem and they're still in a vulnerable position. And so Ruth decides that to care for her and her mother-in-law, she is going to go to the fields and glean. She's going to go glean the fields. And gleaning is an ancient law written into the Mosaic law that is meant to be a means of providing for those who have fallen into the most vulnerable of positions. The law comes from Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, and here is how the text reads about it. 
It says, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And don't gather every remaining bit of your harvest. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant, for I am the Lord your God. So the idea of gleaning in the fields is that if you owned a piece of property, you were supposed to leave the margins of the field unharvested. And as you went through the field harvesting, if something fell on the ground that you messed with your threshing knife, you were supposed to leave it there. And if maybe when you went to go grab like a handful of barley and you hit it with your threshing knife, there was still some barley left standing in that spot, you're supposed to leave it. So that someone who was in need, someone who had come to your hometown without financial security or stability could come to your field, walk behind the harvesters, and find enough on the ground or in the fields that they might survive. It's a really beautiful law in many ways, this provision to help those who find themselves in difficult situations. But what's interesting about gleaning is that it's sort of left up to the generosity of the individual landowner. No one's really controlling what the margins of your field are. It doesn't say. It doesn't say that like this much land is the margins or the edges of your field, and this is too much or this is too little. And it doesn't really say like, hey, somebody's going to walk through your field and audit how much you left on the ground. There's no regulations to this kind of generosity which makes it very tricky. Because if you're a stingy person, then you could decide that the edges of your field go like all the way up until it's just like one stalk of barley that's left on the end. Or if you're a generous person, it could be whole lines of barley. And no one's watching as your harvesters to go through the field, and so you could choose to just be really diligent and make sure that you picked up everything and left very little behind. To leave margin in your field for others, for Boaz to leave margin in his field for Ruth, it is a decision that he has to make. Margin is a thing that has to be cultivated in his field for Ruth to find what it is that she needs. But it is a choice that he has to make regularly. It's a choice you have to make all the time just because you, are, you cannot be generous one day when you've been stingy the day before. If he decided to harvest all the way to the edge of his field, there would be nothing there for Ruth when she arrived. And I think that is really interesting. That margin is a thing that has to be practiced, a thing that has to be cultivated, a thing that has to be chosen day in and day out if we would like to meet people with generosity. I think this is really challenging for us today. And it leads to a question that I want to ask, <clears throat> which is, do we cultivate our own margins? Do we cultivate the margins in our own life? For Boaz, that is his field, so it's easy to talk about the margins. But I was thinking, like, what are the margins in our own life? And there's three things that came to my mind that felt particularly challenging to me. And that was my time, my finances, and my comfort. The first one I was thinking about is my time. Lately, I think I'm just joining a choir when I say this. Lately, I've been feeling very, very frustrated about how much time I spend on my phone. And I don't want to be the old guy who's like yelling about smartphones, but I do kind of feel like the old guy yelling about myself and my smartphone. 
The average American, we look at our phone four hours a day. And we pick it up a hundred times a day on average, which is like one time every 10 minutes, which is insane to me. You just pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. But I do this. Like, I, this is me. I'm not like projecting. This is a hundred percent me. And what I keep thinking about when it comes to this conversation about the margins is how much of my own life's margins are taken up by my inattention and my distraction around my cell phone. I only have so much time to give. I only have so much attention and presence to give in a single moment. And if I spend four hours on my phone, I have much less to give to the people to give to my family, to give to myself, to give to God. But the hard part about the phone, which is why I think it's an interesting analogy in this situation, is that it's such an unconscious behavior. At least for me it is. I pick up my phone, I don't even think about it. And then I'm on there to like text Tori and then somehow I'm on Instagram. I don't know how it happens, you just like, it just happens. It's so unconscious. It's so subconscious, like 15 minutes here, 30 seconds here, and slowly it begins to cut into the margins. And so for me to develop more attention, for me to develop the margins of my own life around my phone, it has to be practiced. It has to be intentional. It has to be deliberate. So this week, just as my own experiment, I turned the grayscale on my phone because supposedly that stops the dopamine hit from your phone, it does make it very boring to look at Instagram when everything is black and white. <laughs> Tori and I, uh, we've, we've been talking all week about maybe buying ourselves a lockbox. I don't know if anybody's done this before, but you, put, you buy a lockbox, you put your phone in a lockbox, and you put a code on, and you just like, leave it somewhere else. I think I might need that, but I might need like a shocking lockbox or something, because I still think I would probably go for it. In order for me to gain my attention back, I just have to find ways to practice developing the margins of my own life. And it's not because looking at your phone is bad. It's not because it's wrong to scroll the internet. It's because I want to be present everywhere else. And I want to be ready and present when those moments enter my life that are surprising and worth being present to. But it takes practice. I think the same is true of my finances. I want to be generous. It's like a goal. Every year, Tori and I talk about this. Like, how can we give more money away? And every year, mm, we struggle. (laughs) But the margins that I have financially have to be practiced. They have to be cultivated. They have to be deliberate. If I unconsciously spend my resources, then I will accidentally never be generous. And the same is true of comfort. Comfort is harder to quantify, but I think all of us have a threshold for how uncomfortable we are willing to be. It's like a margin or a bubble of comfort that we want to preserve in our own life. Those are the margins that we have when it comes to comfort. And I do this thing, I noticed this, actually I never noticed this, Tori pointed out to me because this is, the, this is the fun thing about being married is you learn so many things about yourself. But I have a pretty big, like, I actually have a pretty big uh, bubble around me physically and so Tori noticed that like, if somebody came too close to me, I would slowly back away. I, don't even, I literally don't know that I'm doing this, but Tori was like one time, she was like, I saw you start a conversation at one end of the church and end it at the other end of the church. Because you're just like, uh-huh, that's so nice. I love, I love this conversation we're having. It's really good. We all have that in our own lives. We have a, a level of comfort that we are willing to give and then a level of comfort where it be, we're, we're done. I'm not willing to get this uncomfortable with you. I'm not going to come and give you a ride. I'm not going to have this conversation with you. 
this long. I can't enter this topic with you. I don't like the way this smells. I don't want to be uncomfortable in this way. And so my bubble is here. And so if we want to develop larger margins in terms of our willingness to be uncomfortable, it just takes practice. Our presence takes practice. Our attentiveness takes practice. Generosity takes practice. A willingness to be uncomfortable takes practice. These are things that we cultivate. The margins of our lives, like Boaz's fields, require cultivation. We only have as much margin to give as we have margin to give. And so do we cultivate the margins of our lives? As we continue to read Boaz's story and Ruth's story, it is apparent that Boaz has been cultivating his margins. Because when Ruth arrives to his fields, there is space for her to glean. But there is another kind of cultivation that Boaz has done that also, I think, enables him to pay attention to Ruth when she arrives. When Boaz finally gets to his field, he sees Ruth working in the field. She's already at work gleaning. And he asks one of his harvesters, he says this, Boaz said to his young man, the one who is overseeing the harvesters, to whom does this woman belong? This question speaks to the cultural realities that Ruth is living in. We talked about this the last couple of weeks, that a woman's identity in a patrilineal, patrilocal, patriarchal culture, a woman's identity is found in her relationship to a man. So her father, her husband, her sons, or the master of the household. Just the cultural realities. Money comes there, success comes there, access comes that way, security. So Boaz is like, who's man is this woman? Who does she belong to? And when he learns that she has no male figure in her life, he realizes that she is in quite a precarious and vulnerable position. And so Boaz goes out to Ruth and begins to have this conversation. It says this, Boaz said to Ruth, do not go and glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting. Go along after them. I have ordered the young men not to, depending on the translation here, you get different words. So the common English Bible is not to assault you. And whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from the water that the young men have filled. And then a little bit further down the text, verse 15, Boaz ordered his young men, let her glean between the bundles, and don't, again, the word gets translated differently here. Some translations use rebuke, but the Common English Bible says, do not humiliate her. The tragic and evil reality of Ruth's situation is that she is vulnerable to the violence of men. There's a woman who is navigating the field, who is working this field alone. She is at risk and exposed to the, to the violence of of men. And so Boaz sees this and acts accordingly, which should be common sense and should be common decency, but we know from our own world is neither. And the fact that it reoccurs three different times in the text, we know that it's not common sense in the world. Boaz says it to her, Boaz goes and does it, and then when Naomi hears whose fields Ruth has been working in, the explicit instruction is stay there so that you are not harmed. So we know this is a present danger in the life of 
Ruth. And because Boaz notices this, Ruth says this thing to her, which I think is important. He says, Ruth says, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I think in the same way that we only have as much margin to give as we have margin to give, we also only pay attention to what we notice. Have you ever heard this like a business or a financial adage that is, uh, we manage what we measure? Has anybody ever heard that before? We manage what we measure. We pay attention to what we notice. We see where we are looking. That seems cliche, but many of us are not looking in the direction of Ruth. And many people in her culture are not looking in the direction of Ruth. So we see what we pay attention to. We notice where we are looking. Boaz sees Ruth in the danger of, his, of her position because he is paying attention. And obviously because he's not just paying attention to Ruth, but he is a person who has cultivated his fields for the vulnerable. Which means that he is day in and day out doing the work to notice the vulnerable in his world. Boaz is learning to see, to notice, to pay attention. And Missio, this is a reoccurring theme that will come again and again in the Bible learning to see. And specifically, learning to see like God sees. This story reminds me of another story earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and it's the very first time God gets a name. And the first person who ever gets to name God, many of you will know this, the first person who ever gets to name God, who gives to God a name, is a woman named Hagar, who is a slave, who runs away from her master because of abuse, She's in the desert. God meets her in the desert, and she gives God the name Elroy, one who sees me. And all throughout Scripture, that becomes the moniker for God. In the Psalms, you'll see these moments where it's like the evil do not believe that God sees, but you see suffering. You have a special attention to the needs of the vulnerable. And as we come into the New Testament, James, Jesus' half-brother, says this thing, The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after, to see orphans and widows in their distress. All throughout Scripture, there is this challenge and this calling to learn to see as God sees, to pay attention and to notice. The hard part about that for us is that there is lots of other things to pay attention to. Like I think about Boaz, he has his fields, he has his workers, he has the bottom line. I mean, everybody who gleans from his field costs him money at the end of the day. There's lots of things to pay attention to, lots of good and worthy things to pay attention to that are easy distractions. Seeing, like cultivating the margins of our life, is a practice. It's one of the reasons that over this series we've been talking about the practice of lament, because lament challenges us to see outside of ourselves. And it's one of the reasons that we are in the book of Ruth. It challenges us to see a story that is often very unlike the stories we live today.
to see and to notice takes practice. And so that leads us to another question. What do we see? What are we paying attention to? What do we notice? What kind of sight do we practice? Because Boaz has cultivated his margins and because he has learned and is learning to pay attention, we see that he can act towards Ruth well. He makes sure that Ruth is safe, he provides access to water, and he invites her to the table. Now, these actions, again, they seem um, like common decency, common sense, because they should be. But in the ancient Near East, these are pretty massive gestures of a person's understanding and thought. In the ancient Near East, an Israelite and a foreigner would not share a water jug. This is the tension that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's like, you would want to share this drink with me? That violates some things. So even in Jesus' day, that's a cultural tension. And even more so, men would not draw water jugs for women. That was women's work. And yet Boaz is like, they'll draw the water and you can drink from it. And then the end of that story is that Boaz invites Ruth to sit at his table with the workers and with him to eat a meal. Those gestures are simple and basic, but they are also massive in this context. And I think because Boaz has been doing this work of cultivating his margins, of paying attention, he can act towards Ruth as she deserves, like a human being. He can treat Ruth as God intended. He can lay down cultural stories that tell him he's better than her or that he is owed something by her, and he can treat her with the dignity and respect that she is due. I think Boaz is such a beautiful character to me in so many ways. There's so many different places that we could talk about this, but I think Boaz is such a beautiful character to me because he has been doing the work to become humble and generous and I think to respond to what Ruth is doing in his fields, to respond to what God is doing around him. And that leads us to our final question which is, what is our role to play? So we cultivate the margins of our field. Who and what do we see? And then that third question is, what is our role in this world and in this work? Missio's vision, if you've been here for a while, is joining God in the renewal of all things. And we believe that God is at work in this world, that God is already ahead of us, that God is in the fields, that God is in the city, that God goes before us. And that our job is not to manufacture the presence of God. It's not to manufacture God's work. It's not to save anything. God's doing the heavy lifting. Our job is to pay attention, to partner, and to participate. And something I love about the book of Ruth is that I think God's activity often looks like the book of Ruth. It's ordinary. It's a woman who would risk greatly to provide for her mother-in-law. It's those small acts of faithfulness, as Heather talked about last week, in the midst of suffering and difficulty that display the goodness of God. And as we learn to pay attention, as we cultivate our lives, I think we can see those 
ordinary, beautiful moments of God at work ahead of us, like Ruth in Boaz's fields. But the trick is that we so often do not cultivate our margins. We do not practice attentiveness. And so we miss it. We miss the little work of God in the world around us, the moment where Ruth is in the fields. I'm too busy on my phone. I've spent too much money on just dumb things. And I'm not looking in the right places. But the gift of this invitation is also that if we are cultivating the margins of our lives, if we are learning to pay attention, then we just might encounter a Ruth. That we might get to see and experience and participate the work of God already happening in our midst. So what role is ours to play? It's one of participation and partnership. We're out of curated attentions. We see what God is doing and join in. Now as chapter 2 ends, Ruth begins to head home and she is just like loaded with grain. This encounter has been much better than she had anticipated and so she is loaded with grain. I think the, uh, the translation I could find that says what an EFF would be was like 30 pounds of grain or something, which is I think a lot. <laughs> Not an agrarian, I don't know. I buy my bread. But it's a lot. She comes home loaded with grain. She begins to tell Naomi about all these things that have happened. Like she went here and she got all this grain and it was like pretty cool and, you know, all of that. And Naomi hears this story and says to Ruth, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, for he is not showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then Naomi added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come as this story continues to unfold. But the phrase guardian redeemer, or sometimes kinsman redeemer, is a legal phrase. Like gleaning, it's a legal provision that's built into the Mosaic law as a means for providing for people who have found themselves in very difficult circumstances. And it's built exactly for people in Naomi and Ruth's situation, where your access, your ability to connect to your homeland, to your community, to your wealth, to your financial stability has been literally killed because of death or famine or disease or some terrible event outside of your control. And the role of a guardian or kinsman redeemer was to step into your life. And because of their relationship to you, they could sort of act like a representative on your behalf to regain access to what was lost, to give you, again, access to your inheritance or to your wealth or to your land. And Boaz plays this role for Naomi and Ruth because via marriage, he is related to them. Now, we'll talk about that again in the weeks to come, but that language is interesting of guardian, redeemer, because it begins to get picked up throughout the rest of Scripture and applied to Jesus. And I think that's very beautiful. 
especially in light of what we have just seen about Boaz in this story, in the way Boaz shows up in Ruth's life. Jesus is like that guardian redeemer, the one who sees and pays attention. Elroy, the God who sees, the one who moved into the neighborhood to be close to us and near us, who gave not only his margins, but his entire life to restore us. It's the beauty of this book is that it's an invitation and a challenge to us to see, to pay attention, to live in everyday life. And it is also little glimpses of the person and work of Jesus. And as we see this story, we are invited to both experience and become like Jesus. To see, to cultivate, and to join God in the renewal of all things. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your story. That in these beautiful expressions of everyday faithfulness, we get to see you. That in Ruth's courage, we get to see you. That in Boaz's humility, we get to see a picture of you. And so, Lord, as we hear this story, would you invite us and challenge us and call us into a way of living like yours, where we see, where we cultivate the margins of our lives and we pay attention and partner with you. God, send us this week to be like you. In your name we pray. Amen.